in your copy of God's Word to Galatians chapter 4. We're going to pick up in verses 4 through 7. I'll give you a little helpful tidbit as you're finding Galatians. GE Power Company. Galatians, Ephesians, Philippians, Colossians. You'll never forget it. GE Power Company. And as you're turning, since we've had breakfast, let me point out something. You say, Zach, you're not preaching with the jacket on this morning. Will the sermon still be effective? Well, if I, if I get warm, I'll get sleepy. But if I stay cold, I'll stay awake. So I'm hoping that works for all of us after that wonderful breakfast. <clears throat> now, we're in Galatians chapter 4. We're in the series, The Incarnation and the Mission of God. We looked at Genesis 3. Christ came to bring enmity. We looked at Micah 5. Christ came to bring peace. Now we look at a third category. A third thing Christ brought. And as we bring it, we come to that point, let me ask you a question. What is a Christian? What is a Christian? I'm not asking what a Christian does. I'm not asking what a Christian likes. I'm asking what a Christian is. What is a Christian? At a fundamental level, a Christian is a son. A Christian is a son. We see this in the most basic of places in the Lord's Prayer. How does the Lord's Prayer start? Our Father who art in heaven. Even the very term that He's our Father tells us that we have the relationship of a son. So alongside enmity and peace, Christ came to bring sonship. So let's pick that up in our sermon in a sentence. The birth of the Son was for the adoption of sons. The birth of the Son was for the adoption of sons. Now let us pray and we'll jump in. Heavenly Father, you have given us these words. And these are not words that are like a... a, a social media posts, or a popular novel. This is a living and active word. So I pray you would pour forth your spirit that we may have a living and active faith to receive these words, to store them in our hearts, to cherish them, to love them, to ponder them, to practice them. So Father, we ask your help in the preaching and the hearing and the obeying of your word. We ask it in Christ's name. Amen. Okay, we're picking up Galatians chapter 4, verse 4. Hear the word of the Lord. But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his Son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law, so that he might, or we might receive Adoption as sons. And because you are sons, God has sent the Spirit of His Son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. So you are no longer a slave, but a son. And if a son, then an heir through God. 
Thus ends the reading of God's word this morning. Let me tell you what Paul is talking about in the book of Galatians. Paul is facing a challenging foe. We call them the Judaizers. The Judaizers trouble the church. They're adding to Christ's work circumcision as a necessary part of salvation. So Paul endeavors in a long defense of justification based on Christ's work alone. For Paul, the principle is simple. Whatever you add to Jesus' work always amounts to slavery. And that slavery becomes part of our identity. We see it in their very name. When you add Jewish law to Christ's work, what do you become? A Judaizer. Now, before we think that Paul's dealing with some issue in the first century that we never deal with today, let me remind you that every generation has a Jesus plus something route. When we attach a political party to Jesus, we shouldn't be surprised when that political party becomes the prominent part of our identity. When we add a social issue to our faith in Christ, we shouldn't be surprised when that social issue is more important than, to our identity than Jesus Christ. And the list can go on and on. Do you know what Paul calls this? Slavery. When you're a slave, you never know when you have fought enough, done enough, won enough. There is no assurance. There is no security. There is no inheritance. There is only slavery. So justification gives us a new standing with God. Adoption gives us a new identity in God. It gives us a new freedom. It gives us sonship. Now, how do we get to sonship? Well, Paul tells us the birth of the son was for the adoption of sons. And as he explains this idea, we have two missions, two sendings in our text that form the pegs of our sonship. So what's the first one? If the birth of the son was for our adoption, then the son must be sent. Now wait a minute, Zach. Was the son born or was the son sent? Yes. Both. His sending tells us that the son existed Long before Bethlehem, Christ was appointed mediator. He was appointed to be our Savior back in eternity. And He has always saved and shepherded His people. I mean, has any man ever saved himself? No. All men have always been saved through the promise of Christ. But Galatians tells us, when the fullness of time came, God sent His Son to be born of a woman to accomplish a promised 
redemption. Now, how does he do this? Paul tells us. He says he sent us, he sent him to redeem us from under the law. We see in his birth, he was born of a woman. He was born under the law. That's amazing. How is that amazing? So we've all had kids. You tell your kid, your bedtime's 8 o'clock. And every once in a while, they get smart and they say, why don't you go to bed at 8 o'clock? And what do you tell them? It's my house. It's my rules. You're not obligated to keep that rule because it's your house. Whose house is this? It's God's house. Whose world is this? It's God's world. Whose laws are they? It's God's laws. God is not obligated to keep the law. He is the lawgiver. But because of our sin, the son was born of a woman, born under the law to keep our obligation. The lawgiver became the law keeper for us. Isn't that amazing that the Creator, who in His full and complete freedom, who is only bound by His own character, takes the form of a creature and subjects Himself to the laws made for creatures. The Creator becomes a creature. The lawgiver becomes a lawkeeper. The Son is born for us to redeem us from under the law. This is the crux of the issue. He was born in such a low condition that he may add an infinite value, an infinite worth, an infinite power to his law keeping to redeem us from the penalty of the law. My life is not of that value. If Monty gets thrown in jail, no matter how many good works I do, they're not enough to redeem him from prison. But because Jesus Christ is fully God, it adds value to what he does. He accepted the lowest possible form. Born of a woman. Born under the law. Paul leaves a couple things out. Born in abject poverty. Born with all the disdain of men. Born with the curse of God pressing down upon him. He's born in the lowest possible estate. So he can lift us up. So he can redeem us from the curse of the law. But that's only half the problem. I'm going to tell you something that really bothers me. I grew up in a church like this. Maybe you grew up in a church like this. I hear these types of comments often. We only want to talk about what Jesus saved us from. How many sermons have we heard where salvation is nothing more than a get-out-of-jail-free card? That bothers me. Because that's not what we see in the Bible. Jesus did more than save us from something. Jesus saved us for something. He was sent to redeem us from the law that we might receive adoption as 
sons. Martin Lloyd-Jones says this, It would have been wonderful if God merely decided to leave us in a state of innocence and not punish us. But God's salvation does not stop at that. He elevates us to the dignity of children. He adopts us into a new family, into His family. Let's think of it like this. Jesus doesn't save us and put us back in Eden and say, figure it out. Jesus saves us and brings us forward to the Father. We have received adoption. This is not a monopoly game where you must continually pass go and collect $200. The game is over. It is put up. You have the place. You have the privileges. You have the inheritance. You have the Father. For some, this does not bring to us much joy. Not all of us here have had wonderful fathers as an example. But we are brought to a heavenly Father who tells us He is merciful and gracious, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping His steadfast love for thousands, and forgiving iniquity and transgressions. Our confession puts it like this. We have a Father who pities us, a Father who protects us, a Father who provides for us. He is a refuge to His children, a supply to our want, an ear to our cries, a shoulder for our burdens. We have received adoption as sons. We have received a Father. Church, this is the crux of what a Christian is. It is the key issue. A Christian is a son. This identity is the most defining factor in our life. How many times growing up do we get in situations and we act a certain way because we know who our daddy is. Do we act a certain way? We live a certain way. We look at the world a certain way because of the value and honor and dignity of our family. In the same way, being a son is the most defining aspect of the Christian life. I stress that because we live in the South. And too many well-meaning Christians act more like a son of the South than a son of God. A son of the SEC. A son of a political party. Not like a son of God. The most defining aspect is not our current cultural moment. Our most defining aspect is our Heavenly Father and the adoption we have received. A Christian is a son. 
how we respond to cultural pressures, how we respond to questions and quandaries, how we respond to problems must be answered by our adoption. Are we reflecting our sonship? Are we living like our elder brother? Are we bringing honor to the name of our father? What aspect of our identity is driving us? The son was born for this purpose, that we may receive adoption as sons. The sending of the son delivered us from the curse and brought to us adoption. But there's another sending in our passage. He sent the spirit of his son. What does the Spirit do? The Spirit secures our sonship. Look at his title. He is the Spirit of his Son, not the Holy Spirit. Paul could have said the Holy Spirit, but he specifically says the Spirit of his Son. Why? Because it is the same Spirit that rested on Christ. We are sons of God, if the same Spirit rests on us. As the Spirit equipped Christ for ministry, so the Spirit equips us. Jesus is pretty plain. If you don't have the Spirit, you're an orphan. You're destitute. You're in danger. But we have the Spirit of His Son. We, if we're honest with ourselves, we can relate to what John Calvin says when he says, Nothing but evil comes from man. Nothing but good comes from the Spirit. Nothing but good comes from the Spirit. Those who are sons have the Spirit of His Son. Now how do we know if we have the Spirit? How do we know if our sonship is secure? Paul tells us, Those who have adoption as sons have the voice of a son. They cry, Abba, Father. If I could put it in English, they cry, Dada. You see, that's the most basic form of speech. There is an earnestness, there is a sincerity, there is an intimacy of this cry that can only come from a son. Martin Luther points out that a servant stands at a distance and waits for his master to issue a command. Is that what sons do? What do sons do? They just run and jump in your lap and start talking. They rest in you. We see a similar picture of adoption today. A family adopted a child from Kenya. And this child from Kenya never cried, a small baby. Why? No one cared in this orphanage. No one was coming, and so the children no longer cried. Well, they adopt this child. This child grows and realizes that he has a father who loves him. And do you know what this child begins to do? The child begins to cry because the child knows someone cares. 
As parents, we understand the same things, don't we? Zoe never comes up to me and says, Oh, Father, who provideth bread and nourishment. No, what, you know what I hear a hundred times a day? Daddy, 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 Daddy. Why? Because Zoe's a daughter. The Spirit doesn't give us eloquence of speech. The Spirit gives us familiarity. He gives us sincerity. He gives us intimacy. We see the same thing with Jesus Christ. In the Garden of Gethsemane, when he pours out his soul to death, do you know what we see in his speech? Familiarity. When Jesus is at the tomb of Lazarus and he says, Father, you always hear me. Familiarity. What we see when Jesus secludes himself with the Father, there is an intimacy. They are familiar with each other. If this is the culture of God's family, we will see it in God's sons. You may feel as if your needs are pretty petty compared to the world around you, as if they are too tiny for God to take notice. You may feel as if you are wearing God out day and night, but as you have received adoption from the Son, so we have received a voice from the Spirit. Because we have a listening ear. Do you use that voice? Is it one that is warm and affectionate? Or is it a cold and informal business transaction? Do you have the voice of a son? Now besides the voice of the son, the spirit gives us the inheritance of a son. This is not any inheritance, but it's an inheritance of a firstborn son. I have a problem with the ESV. If you read the ESV, Paul will say things like, I write to you brothers. And they'll put a footnote. And they'll say, Paul is referring to brothers and sisters. That's a false statement. That's not true. Paul is not a chauvinist pig that doesn't care about women in the room. When Paul <coughs> is addressing Everyone as brothers. Let me peel back the layers for a minute. In the first century, women did not get an inheritance. What Paul is doing is not degrading the position of women. He is elevating them to the privilege and positions of a firstborn son in the family of God. They receive an equal inheritance. We don't receive a greater inheritance because we're a man. No, we receive an equal inheritance because it's based on Jesus Christ for where we receive our adoption. We get the inheritance of a firstborn son. The spirit of his son is the first installment, the down payment on the inheritance of a son. Now let me ask, and this is something I think of often with parenting, what's the greatest inheritance we can leave our children? What's the greatest thing you can leave them? Is it money? Is it stuff? What is it? The greatest things that we can leave our children is character. Is character. Now when 
we receive the spirits, what does the spirit work in us? Righteousness, holiness, knowledge, character. This, as we received adoption from the Son, the Spirit gives us the character of sons. John Brown says, Without the first change, heaven is shut against us. Without the second change, we are unfit for heaven. The Spirit seals and certifies our sonship by giving us an enjoyment of this inheritance now. It's 2020. What year is it? It's 2022. Every year for Christmas, we give our kids new gadgets and gizmos, but not God. Our Heavenly Father has given us an inheritance that is undefiled, unfaded, guarded in heaven for us. He has given us a heavenly inheritance of which the Spirit is the very beginning. If our inheritance is righteousness, what should we be now? Righteous. If our inheritance is holiness, what should we be now? Holy. If our inheritance is to know God, what should we have now? Knowledge. These are the things the Spirit works in us. These are the, this is the inheritance we enjoy now. When we come to celebrate Christmas, I mean, you can't exactly, exactly wrap a gift and put on their righteousness and give it to someone. But what we see is the Spirit works that in us every day. As we have the inheritance of sons, as Jesus has come to us to give us adoption with all the privileges of which, that, which abounds in that gift, he continues to give it to us day by day by the Spirit of his Son. So as we come to celebrate Christmas, are we enjoying that gift? Righteousness, holiness, and knowledge is not a burden to us. It is an inheritance. It is something we will enjoy for the rest of our lives. It is for this reason that Christ came. So as we leave this place, we go out into a world that is very different from God's family. Are we living within the context of our identity? Are we Christians? Well, let me phrase it differently. Are we sons? Do we have the character of sons? Do we face each situation as sons? Do we enjoy our Father? This is the reason Christ came, that we may have sonship. Now, would you pray with me? Heavenly Father, that's such a privilege. How many prayers I have started with those words and not simply rejoiced at, their, at the very saying of them. Father, I pray that you would help us to form, that you would form in us the character of sons. I pray that you would help us know your face more as you have revealed it in Jesus Christ. That we would be able to love what you love and hate what you hate and think your thoughts after you. 
that in any given situation, Christ may be formed in us. So Father, make us this day. Help us to enjoy this inheritance. Help us to be defined in our, by our relation to you. Father, we ask for a greater enjoyment of these things. And we ask it in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen.